This is An Economy of One, your beacon guiding you through the turbulent waters of the political economy, its life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-reliance. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Good evening and welcome again to An Economy of One. I am your host, Gary Rathbun. Our website, aneconomyofone.com. Joining me now is Edward Conard. He's a visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute and author of the New York Times top 10 bestseller, Unintended Consequences, Why Everything You've Been Told About the Economy is Wrong, and most recently, The Upside of Inequality, How Good Intentions Undermine the Middle Class, which has reached number seven on the New York Times bestseller list and was number one on the New York Times best business book list. Spent more than a decade as a managing director at Bain Capital, and to some of us, maybe uh, Ed is best known for his long-term form debates on The Daily Show with John Stewart. Ed, welcome to An Economy of One. Well, thank you for having me, Gary. I appreciate it. I really enjoyed your book. And we've had several people on talking about inequality. We've had several people talking about education, taxation. Uh, your book kind of puts it all together. I, I guess where I want to start is what really causes the inequality, and why is it a good thing? Why is it good that we have a top 1%, a top 5%? I think uh, one of the main drivers of inequality, well, there's probably two drivers. One is that we have a shortage of properly trained talent. We have plenty of talent. Not a lot of it's properly trained. Uh, I could give you some statistics on that. And the second is that we've grown, uh, our economy is increasingly driven by technological innovation. So uh, you would expect to find uh, some level of rising inequality uh, as the economy demands uh, more and more talent to solve the technological problems it faces. We've seen a moderate increase in the uh, pay of skilled relative to unskilled workers. But where we've really seen the most inequality, and I think the part that really drives everyone uh, uh, a little crazy is not the 1% and not even the 0.1%, but the 0.001% or even uh, a thinner slice than that. And what you find there are largely innovators who have been able to, in the information economy, scale up to economy-wide success in a world which is much bigger than it used to be. And so their incomes have grown dramatically relative to median incomes, uh, which are largely constrained by the number of customers a person can serve, whether that's a doctor or a school teacher or a, 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 a bus driver, um, you know, what we're going to see in the future is that as people find new innovations at scale to economy-wide success, the value of those innovations become bigger and bigger and bigger relative uh, to the median worker. So it's just hard to believe that somebody like Steve Jobs, who creates the Apple iPhone and, uh, and uh, uh, contributes to the inequality that we're seeing, really isn't uh, doing something which is very valuable and important to helping uh, the world, not only uh, rich people, but uh, poor people around the world, too. If you look at uh, in the last 100 or 200 years, virtually all of the increase in standard of living has come from private enterprise, not from uh, charity or, or government. Uh, they've been actually small contributors, which is not to say that they don't contribute. They certainly do. But the largest contributor by far has been technological innovation and its commercialization in the private uh, sector. You know, one of the things that I've noticed over recent history is the negative envy of the top one hundredth of one percent. It seems to me it stems from the attitude, the general populace thinking that the economic pie is fixed and that these innovators actually expand the pie, that when they get rich, 
a whole lot of other people get jobs and make money and innovate and take risks as well, don't they? Yeah, absolutely true. But I, I think the reason why you see frustration is because we haven't seen a lot of growth in middle and working class incomes as much as we had seen in the past. And I think, and so it gives the impression that it's a zero-sum game where if somebody at the top uh, takes uh, more, that everybody at the bottom gets less. That math seems to work in a very uh, simplistic way if you don't think about about the pie increasing. But what you also should realize is that growth can manifest itself in two ways, as an increase in employment or as an increase in wages. And what we've seen in the United States since the 1980s is uh, over a 50% increase in employment. In uh, uh, France and Germany, it's been half as much, you know, twice as much as France and Germany, three times as much as Japan in employment increase. And today, the United States is home to 40 million foreign-born adults and their 20 million native-born adult children and 20 million uh, uh, children who aren't yet working. And so there's been an enormous increase in the U.S. workforce relative uh, to workforces in other high-wage economies, Europe and, uh, and Japan. And so as long as you have a, a near-unlimited supply of labor, what you're going to see is an increase in employment over an increase in wages. It takes uh, somewhat of a shortage of, uh, of supply in order to get a rise in price, although uh, productivity increases can contribute to rises in, uh, in wages. One of the things in reading through the book, I kept thinking that somebody's going to think this is pretty controversial, but, but you're all in favor of importing these higher skilled engineers, higher skilled innovators, increasing the number of people that come into this country from outside for these jobs, aren't you? I am for this reason. If you look forward into the future, you see two very big problems looming for the United States. The first is retiring baby boomers mm-hmm. who uh, you know, eat us alive. If you look at the Congressional Budget Office, they project that uh, government spending will increase from about 35% in total, including state and local. You add uh, seven or eight percentage points from, uh, uh, from baby boomers retiring, and you get uh, uh, you know, between 40 and 45% percent of GDP is government spending. So uh, that can lead to a major slowdown in growth, a very large increase in taxes. It's very unlikely that politically we're going to take any of the benefits away from retiring baby boomers, and it's not clear that we want to because they're going to need those benefits. And so being able to grow our economy faster will be critical. The second problem that we face is that after we get done uh, paying for the baby boomers, we have to defend ourselves against an emerging Chinese economy, which in the next 10 or 15 years is going to be larger than the United States. So you have to do more than just raise taxes and pay for retiring baby boomers. You have to emerge from this next uh, wave of retirement strong enough to defend yourself. And so, you know, you can have competing objectives. If you're a high-wage, high-skilled employee, you might want higher wages, and so you want the supply restricted. But I think if you really look forward and think about what's best for your children and what's uh, going to keep America strong, we need substantially faster growth than the growth we're likely to get. And it's unlikely that we can get enough of an increase in growth through tax reform to really solve this problem. I think that high-skilled immigration is really the only chance that we have to solve this problem effectively. I think we have squandered it over the last uh, 10 or 15 years. and, uh, and we can talk a little bit about this, it could actually have an enormous impact on growth. 
it's the old John F. Kennedy saying, when the tide comes in, all the boats rise. So by importing these highly skilled or ultra high skilled jobs, that's that's going to raise wages and standard of living for virtually everybody along the line, isn't it? I mean, think about it now. We, we're already uh, Skyping a lot of those mm-hmm. workers in, uh, uh, you know, on the phone. And so we are hiring computer programmers all around the world, in Eastern Europe, in Russia, in India, uh, and throughout Southeast Asia. There's an enormous amount of hiring that's occurring in, by U.S. companies. Now, when that happens, we don't get the tax revenues of those workers. Our waitresses don't get to wait on them. Our school teachers don't get to teach their children. Our doctors don't get to uh, administer their health care. All of that benefit is left overseas, and it's still competing with the worker here. So why not put the worker here instead of over there and get all the other benefits? If you look at our tax code, a person in the top 20% pays about $50,000 or your top 20% of income pays about $50,000 a year more in taxes than they consume in government services this year. If you look at it, a median income worker, they consume about the same amount in government services as they, uh, as they pay in taxes. So they contribute almost nothing to retiring baby boomers. They don't really contribute to their own retirement. They don't really uh, help the poor. They largely just pay for the government services they consume. So if you need a very large increase in taxes to pay for the retiring baby boomers, the best way to get that is with a worker who's going to pay a lot more in taxes then they're going to consume government services. There's very few other ways that we have to try to get those tax revenues, aside from simply taxing our most productive workers. And we saw the European experiment. They've tried that experiment. What happens? The workers go on vacation. They stop innovating. They stop taking risks. They don't get very entrepreneurial. The United States has produced 10 times as many uh, billion-dollar startups, privately valued you know, billion-dollar startups, uni- so-called unicorns, ten times as many as Europe has over the last you know, 10 or 15 years. That's just an extraordinary difference, given that we're basically the same size economies. Right. But their, their most talented workers have basically given up. I had a gentleman on the show oh, last week, I think, talking about specifically STEM education. And uh, he's got a company that goes into high schools and colleges and tries to educate kids on the value of STEM and the practical application of STEM. Has our education system really failed in developing enough of the highly skilled people, and can that be changed? Well, you know, I was a, I was an engineer. I went to the University of Michigan. That's where I started my ah. career. So uh, I'm, I'm uh, pretty familiar with the education. I guess I would say this. I'm all for, and we can talk a little more about education, I'm all for trying to improve our education system. And I think there are a number of areas where we could make improvements. But let's not kid ourselves. We've been trying to do this for decades, mm-hmm. and we have gotten no increase in test scores. We have uh, tried to persuade people to become STEM majors. More and more of our top-scoring students are becoming business majors, uh, uh, going to law school. We have an enormous number of, of, of our most talented students taking history, English, psychology, anything they can do to get away from a lifetime uh, spent in uh, math and sciences. So we have not been very successful at all in persuading people to, to pursue these STEM careers. Now, we've got a couple minutes left or so. Uh, I want to jump to the end a little bit. 
and because he had some very practical, very reasonable solutions to this. What are some of the things that you feel need to be done as soon as possible to turn this innovation and growth picture around for America? Well, I think the fastest thing we can do, as, as I said, and as we've talked about, is increase high-skilled immigration. And we're issuing a million green cards a year. You have about uh, 125 million full-time workers, a top 5% of 6 million, in a, in a very short order. You can actually double the number of high-skilled workers, ultra-high-skilled workers, and, and potentially double the growth rate of the United States if it's largely driven by technological change. That solves a lot of the problems. The second thing you can do is rationalize the, the, the uh the tax code, particularly the corporate tax code, where we have uh, you know, astronomically high marginal rates mm-hmm. in the United States in corporate taxes, and most people aren't paying them, but they're still paying 25 28% for the parts of the businesses that are here in the United States. Most of the tech companies are basically paying Ireland and Singapore uh, 15% to avoid 25 to 30% in the United States. That makes absolutely no sense. We ought to at least collect the 15% that everybody's paying to the rest of the world. And by doing that, we will create an environment in the United States that would be unbeatable for any company that wants to succeed in the world not to be here with our pool of talent and our institutions and the spillover effect that those institutions have on the rest of our economy. We can make the United States, it's already the best place in the world to do business, but we could make it just so much more competitive than it always than it already is it would be difficult for any company to compete particularly if we go out and recruit their talent mm-hmm. one of the things i noticed in your solutions once again that i think is probably a very controversial statement and you've probably gotten pushed on a little bit and that's in the educational system fire all the teachers are not effectively teaching <laughs> Well, I'm, I, I guess I, I'm, I, I'm a little more cautious than that. I actually am kind of supportive of of teachers. Look at I, I, Bill Gates said something very important, which is uh, we have a lot of motivated teachers. What we lack are a lot of motivated students. <laughs> I think when you look yeah. at the results in the U.S. education system, it's more similar to the rest of the world than people think. So if you look at first-generation immigrants, for example, we outscore uh, most of the other countries in uh, in Europe. Uh, if you look at uh, his, the scores of, of, of students from low socioeconomic families, uh, social, uh, uh, families, you see uh, our scores are comparable to most of the other countries in Europe. If you look at uh, European Americans versus Europe, our scores are very similar. If you look at Asian Americans versus Asians, the scores are very similar. I, I, don't, I don't put the blame at the uh, at the foot of uh, teachers, I I think the problems are uh, much more complicated than simply what's going on in the school system. Sure. Teachers are working hard to cope with it. I don't think every teacher is great, and I think there's plenty of improvements, charter schools and such, that we can do to help. But but I don't think we're going to find over the next 10 or 20 years that that is where the opportunity lies. Yeah, I, I would agree. We've been speaking with Edward Kennard. He's the uh, author of the new book, The Upside of Inequality, How Good Intentions Undermine the Middle Class. Ed, this has been a real treat for me. I hope we can uh, tap you on the shoulder again soon and take a little more of your time and talk about this further. Sure, great, Gary. Thanks for having me. I appreciate your time. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun.
back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Just got done talking with Ed Kennard, author of The Upside of Inequality, How Good Intentions Undermine the Middle Class. Interesting guy, but it also adds to the thought process of how complex the immigration discussions are. I've told you many, many times, I'm all in favor of immigration as long as it's legal immigration. Where I have a problem is amnesty programs, bringing in a bunch of illegals, not filtering them, not testing, not really caring what diseases they're bringing in, what consequences they're bringing in, jumping on our entitlement benefits on day one, all this stuff. That's a problem. That's a problem. And it sounds cold-hearted, but you're not going to ask us all to commit suicide in order to support illegal immigration. I know people want to be charitable. They want to help people. So do I. But not at the cost of destroying what I'm about, what this country's about, my family, our resources, none of that. So it's a complex issue. It's not a headline, straightforward, five-second thought issue. We have to put some research and time and study into this and really get a handle on what's what. People don't like the H-2B visas. We need them. We need the innovation to create the GDP, to create the jobs, to create the income. It's all a ripple effect. Very important. Coming up next, Dr. Richard Ebling. Gary Rathbun, an economy of one. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Joining me now is Dr. Richard Ebling. He's the BB&T Distinguished Professor of Ethics and Free Enterprise Leadership at the Citadel in Charleston, South Carolina. He's author and editor of many books, including Monetary Central Planning and the State, Future, <coughs> Future of Freedom Foundation publication 2015, co-host of the weekly video, The Libertarian Angle, former president of the Foundation of Economic Education and the Ludwig von Mises Professor of Economics at Hillsdale College, just up the road. Richard, welcome back to An Economy of One. Great to be with you again. Thanks for having me back on. I appreciate your time. So i like to uh, get some experts on and talk a little bit about what the Federal Reserve is doing. And if we have time, I want to ask you about, uh, I think it was Governor Fisher that, that uh, resigned today, but First, I want to talk about inflation, because I read a recent column you wrote about the Federal Reserve's target inflation, and it had a lot of insights that I hadn't covered uh, on the show uh, recently. And, you know, you make a very good point that the Federal Reserve uh, targeting, uh, for example, uh, we always hear targeting a 2% inflation is kind of a... 
uh, a futile exercise, kind of a, a moot point, isn't it? Yes, it is. And the reason is, is that um, when, the, when the government talks about uh, the inflation rate, mm-hmm. usually saying, well, what's happened to the consumer price index? Uh, it has to be remembered that this is a statistical averaging of a multitude of different prices, different prices of different forms of food, different types of clothing, different type of, of energy sources, uh, different types of entertainment. And they take all these individual prices, uh, work out a simple uh, statistical average, and then say this is what is the inflation rate. And they track that. But the point is that is what it is. It's a statistical creation. Mm-hmm. It, it's an artifact of, the, of, the, of taking a bunch of numbers and working out an average. The real prices in the economy are those individual prices. And especially during a period of inflation, when the government has been increasing the money supply, injecting it into the economy in particular ways, that money then gets into people's hands. And they spend it on the things that they find attractive. If the government does this through the banking system, it's first businessmen who borrow it through the banking system. If, it, if it's, it's funding government deficit spending, well, then it's money first in the hands of the government, and they spend it in various ways. And the people who receive that money, when the government purchases things from them, then proceed to spend that new money in various ways that represent their, their demands for things. And it then sends off all these sort of ripples uh, of affecting the economy in different and dynamic and complex ways that has nothing to do with what they work out as this average price level. The analogy I use sometimes is to think if you drop a pebble in a pond of water mm-hmm. from the epicenter or the point from which the pebble hits the surface, ripples then go out towards the shore in a certain pattern, in a sequence. Now, that's the real way changes in the money supply affect all the different patterns and relationships of individual prices in the economy, distorting profit margins, creating false incentives that last only as long as these ripples are at work due to the monetary expansion. And that's all hidden beneath the surface of their little uh, average inflation rate. And as a consequence, it's a distorted and incorrect and, in fact, dangerous policy tool to be focusing on. Now, when we talk about prices, okay, a lot lot of discussion around economics revolves around prices. And prices are determined by a consumer's motivation. And what motivates a person to make a decision to buy one thing over another, what motivates them to pay a, a certain price over a different price, um, it does, does the Federal Reserve's actions um, generate or rationalize people's motivations and, and what leads them to, to do one thing over another? Absolutely. Uh, the, 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 the main mechanism is, is that, you see, the, the, the Federal Reserve basically goes out and buys government securities, mm-hmm. uh, the government's IOUs of what it issues to cover its budget deficits. Right. And then that money that the Federal Reserve has created this way uh, ends up in the banking system. And the banks have more money to lend. Well, how do you attract people to borrow more? Well, we all know that if you have more to sell and you want people to buy more, you lower the price right. to make it more attractive. Now, in the banking situation, it's the rate of interest. What is the cost of borrowing? So they create this money. It's in the banking system to lend to get lenders to, to borrow us to take it off the lenders' hands. The banks lower the rates of interest, and that distorts and influences businessmen to undertake investments 
to undertake projects of investing in machinery, hiring workers, that will later be found to be inconsistent with what the real and market-based incentives and profit opportunities are. In other words, it's, it's directing resources, capital investments, machines, tools, buildings, workers into employment that once the inflation ends or slows down are going to be found to be unsustainable. You've been hired to do something for which really the long-run demand is not there for, and you're then going to fall back into unemployment and discover that you have to find something new to do that is more sustainable in the long run. Is what you just described, is that pretty much the definition of of uh, what you call the business cycle? Absolutely. That is basically it. Uh, what happens in a business cycle is that uh, it normally uh, the, the, the sort of the, the boom part of the business cycle, the upturn, uh, attend, tends to occur in the investment sectors of the economy, drawing resources and workers into various uh, businesses, making uh, machines, tools, investing in factories and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a sort of a general pattern. And that's because that's where the money is injected into the system, the banking system. And, uh, and, and people borrow it to a great extent for investment purposes. And then finally, it's found out that projects have begun that can't be completed. Jobs have been created that cannot be sustained in the long run. And then the downturn of the business cycle phase sets in and we have a recession or a depression. Now, you know, I'm still, this is, and I'm embarrassed to say, because I've done this for a long, long, long time. Uh, it, it, this is a different perspective for me on inflation and money supply. I always described inflation as an increase in the money supply or a devaluation of the dollar. And I know that's kind of superficial, but when it comes to the Fed, I mean, they, they, they can control the money supply through actually printing dollars, which I know they don't print, it's digital, and also by messing with interest rates. So they have they have a couple tools that they can can essentially mess up the pricing equilibrium in the, the economy, can't they? Absolutely. And in fact that's what set off uh the the, the boom that became the recession, uh that was the financial crisis of two thousand and eight and two thousand and nine. Uh, for the five years before uh, 08 and 09, the Federal Reserve had expanded the money supply mm-hmm. by various ways the Federal Reserve measures it itself by about 50 percent. Interest wow. rates were, were pushed really low. Uh, in fact, uh, in real buying terms, uh, virtually negative or, or actually negative. So it resulted in creating these false expectations of profit opportunities, cheap money to borrow, uh, investments that could be undertaken. And finally, the chickens came home to roost, and that was the financial crisis of 08 and 09. Now, of course, that was exacerbated because all, a lot of that money also was used uh, to give uh, low-interest loans to many home buyers who basically were not creditworthy. Right, right, right. Now, you know, let, let's shift gears a little bit because I've talked to uh, a couple of experts over the last few weeks um, in regards to Hurricane Harvey. And I, 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 I feel for the victims. I've sent them money. I, I don't mean to exploit them for my own uh, content on the radio show. But I think it creates a, a kind of an interesting, um, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, experiment, if you will, on economics. And that is uh, what, what the press commonly calls price gouging. 
And right. when, when it comes to a hurricane like that, and, and we're seeing it in Florida already where the shelves are all bare uh, on anything, that really gives us a, a clear uh, uh, indication of how pricing models work in in the economy as a whole, even though it's kind of magnified, doesn't it? Absolutely. Uh, it's, it, the, the core ideas that are important to understand is that if we ask what, what prices do in the market, they serve two functions or, or elements, if you would, and that is they act as incentives and they act as information. Now, if, if, if there's a crisis situation like happened in Hurricane uh, Harvey, and uh, I'm in I'm in South Carolina. We may soon be experiencing the same thing from Hurricane Irma. Right. And uh, the, the situation is that suddenly there's this increased demand for essential everyday products, uh, the, t- the typical one that, that has sort of gotten people's attention, you know, what, bottled water right. in the stores. Right. And the point is the supply is, is what it normally has been. You know, it's flowing into the stores every couple of days from suppliers. But then there's this increased demand. Now, the, the one way of rationing the product is for the price to rise. Right. And that higher price tells people, well, maybe I should conserve on how much I buy because it's now more expensive. And that actually spreads the existing supply among all, more people rather than the supposed idea that's agreed. But at the same time, with a crisis situation like that, suddenly a much higher price for a product like water sends out incentive and information signals to people everywhere. Right. Wow. I, I'm, let's say, in Knoxville, Tennessee, <laughs> and I can buy bottled water for 79 cents a bottle. Yeah. But it's selling for $20 down in Houston. How can I find a way to capture that profit by, by transporting it to where it's suddenly much more uh, valuable than where I can buy it where I am? You know, and just to bring it full circle, Richard, how would you relate the supply and demand imbalance there and the prices going up? Uh, is, is there any room in the paragraph appropriately for the term inflation in that? No, okay. uh, because, because inflation has been understood uh, for a very long time uh, by many economists, if not most, as an increase in the money supply mm-hmm. that in general tends to bring about a rise in prices as a whole, uh, in that sort of staggered and, and rippling way that I tried to explain earlier. So increase in money supply does increase prices as a whole. But what we're talking about is the price of, of water, for instance, in Houston relative the, to the prices of water in Knoxville, Tennessee, right. or in Columbus, Ohio, and, 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 the, and the, the price of water relative to a lot of other things in both uh, Texas and the rest of the country. And that in itself is not inflation. That's a change in the actual real demands and supplies for particular goods mm-hmm. relative to all the others that are on the market. The, the opposite would be true as well if the semi from Budweiser with free water got there ahead of you. Suddenly your price Correct. would be worth a lot less on the open market. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. But, but that rising price is actually the, the signal that there are profit opportunities and to take care of it and take advantage of it as soon as possible right. to alleviate that, that shortage. It, it's like when you have a temperature. You, 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 you get the thermometer out, and you realize that it's now showing that you have, you have a temperature above normal. Right. You don't find out that you have that problem 
by putting your finger over the mercury, metaphorically, (laughs) and preventing it from telling you what your condition is. Right, right, right. That's uh, you know, and it's it's just a different perspective. I really appreciated your 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 column on on that. We've been speaking with Dr. Richard Ebling. He's BB and T Distinguished Professor of Ethics and Free Enterprise Leadership at the Citadel in Charleston, South Carolina. Richard, as always, uh, time just flies by when I talk to you. Uh, you're very fascinating. We always get good feedback from our listeners when you're on. And uh, I got about six more pages of questions, so uh, I hope we can. <laughs> Tap you on the shoulder again sometime soon and, and continue the discussion. My pleasure. Anytime. It's great being on the show with you again. Thank you. Thank you. You have a good evening. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. To an economy of one with Gary Rathbun. Okay, let's look at some numbers since this is supposed to be kind of a numbers show. Does Texas and or Houston really need federal flood flood relief dollars? Federal flood relief dollars. Now, I'm sure uh, you know I got no problem, you know, contributing my dollars, but if the government contributes money, then it takes it from somewhere else takes it from other states, all the other states. And uh, let's look at some numbers. Texas's economy, when measured by GDP, is bigger than Canada. Texas GDP, bigger than Canada. It's bigger than Australia. It's bigger than Russia. So Texas as an economy, would be the 10th largest economy in the world, $1.6 trillion. So technically, Texas, its citizens, are more than capable of taking care of natural disasters, even a a flood of this size, okay? If, If they could keep their federal dollars. For every dollar that Texas sends to the federal government, well, let's rephrase that. For every dollar that the federal government confiscates from someone in Texas, they receive back, where's the number? A dollar nine. No, take that back. Just the opposite. For every dollar nine that Texas spends or is confiscated by the federal government, they get a dollar back. So if they just kept their dollars rather than send any money to the federal government, they would have more than enough money to pay for this flood. The GDP of Houston is bigger than Poland, bigger than Belgium, bigger than Austria, and bigger than Norway. It accounts for almost 40% of Texas GDP. Now think about that. You don't think of Houston. I know I don't. When when you think of Texas, you think of the big city of Dallas. You don't really think of Houston. But Houston would be what's the number? Um, I don't know, like fifteenth or something 
uh, GDP by itself. Now, once again, I'm not suggesting anything. I'm not suggesting we don't uh, help Texas out as a country. They're one of our states, and they certainly line up to help other states and other areas when they have uh, disasters and problems as well. Now, I'm just saying that you have to look at these numbers and put them in perspective. And Texas is a big, big state. I may be wrong, but I I remember reading somewhere something. Dan, you're a trivia guy. Um, Doesn't Texas have more shoreline than Alaska? I'd believe it. Well, as a producer, you should be punching that in as we speak, <laughs> and you're not. Sticks in my mind that the the state of Texas has more shoreline than Alaska does, and Alaska's a big state, okay, big state. Now, I may be 100% wrong on that, but uh, I pride myself at knowing useless trivia, and, and uh, that's pretty useless trivia, so... Uh, But anyway, the point is, Texas is big, and am I right? New. Oh. Texas is actually sixth. Really? Alaska stays number one. Okay. Okay. I stand corrected. So who would then be number two? Hawaii? Uh, It goes Alaska, Florida, California, Hawaii, Louisiana, then Texas. Louisiana? Louisiana. That one's surprising. Florida makes sense. You know, that, that's, I mean, the whole coastline, the whole border of Florida is water. And, and same thing with Hawaii. They're all, it's yeah. all coastline. Yeah. Um, yeah, actually, it's it's Texas with uh, five, well, of course they did, 367 miles of coastline to Alaska's 6,640 miles. Oh, so not even close. Nope. Then. No. Okay. Where did I get that then? I don't know. Mm-hmm. I read so much. It's all a jumble up here after a long weekend. So we'll go that route. Okay, so Alaska's number one by a long shot then. Okay, I remember who told me that. I'm going to have to have to chastise them for for the wrong information. So, oh uh, <laughs> uh, well. I don't know. I just hit. I just hit the Googles. I don't know what to tell you. That's what I need you to do. So, uh, not a problem. I want you to have a great day. Be an individual. Be self reliant. Be an economy of one. I'm Gary Rathman. We'll see you next time. The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC-registered investment advisor. 